This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up another another week. It's been National Agriculture Week, but a lot of the focus has been on the weather in a lot of the country, and we know it's very dangerous, very serious situation uh, for a lot of people uh, dealing with this winter weather, whether it's the wind, the snow, the flooding, whatever it may be, please be careful. And uh, hopefully we're going to get through this, get this behind us soon, but I know it's going to take a long time for some areas uh, to uh, get over all of these uh, storms that have been hitting and don't get through completely over one before another one hits. That's been the cycle for uh, a lot of the country. So again, uh, please be careful. Coming up on our program today, a closer look at the dairy industry. We know it's struggling. Uh, we'll get a better idea of just how much and uh, what can be done to help. We're going to talk with an economist with the National Milk Producers Federation. Also, we're going to talk more about the markets. Had an interesting conversation yesterday on the markets. We're going to have another one today with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. What does he think about uh, what could be a very friendly scenario playing out for corn? And uh, what about the late planting? What how does that affect acres and, of course, all the trade things? Also coming up on the program today, we're going to talk with the Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Still a lot of concern about this new technology when it comes to uh, lab-based meat and, and the oversight of it between USDA and FDA. We'll be talking about that a little bit later in the program as well. But yesterday, we had more news on EPA granting more small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Uh, the renewable fuels industry is basically saying here they go again and really undermining uh, what looked to be more positive news earlier in the week with the E15 announcement. Then this comes along. Let's talk about it with Jarrett Renshaw, National Energy Markets Reporter for Reuters. And, and Jarrett, uh, this was not what the renewable fuels industry wanted to see, more of these waivers. For sure. There's certainly a lot of uh, angst and uh, a lot of disappointment yesterday. But, you know, the, the way I look at it, Mike, there was, uh, you know, these things are kind of looked backwards. So these were 2017 waivers. We had already known that they issued 29 of them. There were seven pending. They decided five of them yesterday. It would have been highly unusual for them to approve 29 and then reject five. Um, you know, maybe for some uh, paperwork reasons, but I mean, how do you, how would you, you know, how would you justify, you know, and we always ask this legally justify approving 29 and then denying five, particularly when we know that the, the folks that got them, the, the ExxonMobil, Chevron, you know, they would probably be up the outliers to begin with. Um, so if you've granted, granted these waivers to, to companies that own um, these types of refineries, it'd be hard pressed to deny them. So I, you know, for me, it was, it was expected, and I understand the, um, you know, uh, the position of the biofuels community, but um, it, it, to me, it was, uh, it was no surprise. But still, it, it gets back to the point what the renewable fuels industry has been saying, that if, if you're going to keep, if EPA is going to continue to grant waivers, it pretty much offsets, maybe more than offsets, any uh, gain that they would get from summer sales of E15. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, 
you know, it's always complicated to see how these things work because there's so many other variables, uh, you know, gasoline consumption and things like that. But for for sure, um, these waivers are a, a threat to the renewable fuel standard and, um, you know, certainly offset uh, any of the benefits for E15. And, and the key, to me, I think the key metric we're going to look at or the key thing, the key flashpoint to look at is I believe next week we'll see how they're going to decide the 2018 uh, waivers. And, you know, I, to me, I think that's probably the biggest day of the year, um, perhaps for the renewable fuel industry. Uh, you know, if, if, if they do as I expect, which is kind of continue what they've done through 17, that's, that's a real blow. And uh, that, that signals that these small refining waivers, absent a, uh, you know, a, a, a court ruling, are, are here to stay and kind of a, a fixture in the, in, in, the, in, in the RFS landscape, one that the, you know, the biofuel f- folks don't like. And if obviously we see the opposite, we see a, a, a huge reduction, um, you know, and I think that signals something else, a different shift. Um, you know, uh, so I, to me, I think that's really the most pivotal day on the calendar as far as I can see, um, you know, of kind of where this EPA is going and, and how that impacts folks from, you know, all over the country who are involved in, in this industry. And what day is that expected? You know, we're hearing Thursday because um, that's when they update the stuff typically. Um, but uh, we don't have anything concrete. But that uh, my expectation, you know, my for my planning purposes is next Thursday. I think we'll see that 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 dashboard that the EPA operates get updated. And, you know, uh, from a political so. from a political standpoint, I would guess the administration is trying to please both sides, and I'm, I think they're going to spin it. Well, we're giving we're granting E15 summer sales. He says that to the renewable fuels industry, to the oil industry, saying, well, you're also getting these uh, these waivers, these exemptions. Uh, I don't know that that's playing real well trying to appease both, because I think you just wind up with both sides mad at you. Yeah, you know, Mike, if we did a story on uh, last week about a, a, a lawsuit challenging the expansion of the waiver program, and in it we learned that the EPA changed their scoring system. Uh, and, and, and not to get down to the specifics, the, the biggest change was that they're no longer going to take into account profitability and financials. So ultimately, it's just can you prove you, you're, you're disadvantaged logistically or some other reason for, from the RFS? And that's not, that's not a high bar. Like, these are small refineries in kind of rural areas that are by definition disadvantaged. So proving that is not that hard to do. The more complicated one is kind of proving the financial impact, which now the EPA is no longer really going to consider. So they're going to have to defend that in court. And then how do you defend that in court and then reverse course in 2018 mm-hmm. and do something different? Like, to me, they box themselves in. And, and I think because of that, I don't, I don't think they have many places to go for 2018 other than to continue granting the waivers, um, unless yeah. they're going to com- you know, completely um, shift course and then, and then def- make some kind of uh, weird argument in, in a legal case defending the expansion. So. Hey, yeah. Real quick, we got a minute left. What's the oil industry uh, reaction to the E15 announcement, and especially REN reform? Uh, Certainly, the uh, as expected. uh, Well, there's somewhat mixed reviews, right? The uh, broadly, the E15 is panned, right? They don't uh, they don't like that. They don't want the the additional uh, competition. um, Whether they say that say that as, as such. Um, and on the RIN reforms, they're kind of split. There's a merchant refiners who don't have a lot of blending facilities who are happy to see RIN reforms that ultimately drive the cost of credits down. 
Um, and there's big oil companies that 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 that, uh, that generate more RINs than they need, and, and and to comply, who don't like um, the additional things. So it's really kind of a, a divided oil industry over the reforms and a unified uh, oil industry in opposing the E15. All right, so we'll see what happens next week. We get uh, even more information. Uh, wow, this 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 topic just doesn't go away, and uh, we're going to be talking more about it as we move forward. Jarrett, thanks for the update, as always. And hey, no problem. Take it easy, Mike. Jarrett Renshaw, National Energy Markets Reporter for Reuters. A look at the dairy economy. That's coming up next. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds, all backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, we talk a lot about the ag economy being down and concerns in different uh, sectors. Uh, right at the top of that list would be the dairy industry really struggling again. want to get a, an overview of the, of the situation. And joining us now is Peter Vitaliano. He's an economist for the National Milk Producers Federation. Peter, thanks for joining us Uh when we look at where the dairy economy, the dairy industry is right now in 2019, how would you compare that historically to other times we've seen, uh, uh, you know, a struggling economy? Okay, thanks, Mike. Yeah, 2019 is going to look uh, better than uh, 2018, but um, 2018 was, was in some way, price-wise, was probably the worst year since 2009. So that's not a very high bar. Uh, the last five, four or five years, we're going on five years of, of pretty much suboptimal performance, and that's, uh, as you well know, is, is taking a cumulative toll on the financial uh, positions of, of dairy farmers across the country. We're, as I said, things will look better this year uh, price-wise and margin-wise, and we've got an improved uh, safety net program, the new dairy margin coverage that will be of great help, particularly to smaller producers. But it's not going to be a robust recovery that's going to that's going to go anywhere near. Unfortunately, restoring uh, restoring uh, farmers to uh, you know to a, a reasonable financial position. So the dairy industry, like pretty much all of agriculture, uh, hoping to get a boost from uh, trade deals, whether it's China, USMCA, Japan, or whatever it may be. We don't know what's going to happen, but there there's some hope there. How would those impact the dairy industry? Well, exports took a big increase uh, last year. Um, they kind of trailed off toward the end uh, end of last year. Even though we did uh, we did suffer from some losses that particularly hit prices hard uh, when China and Mexico, maybe a few other countries, imposed retaliatory tariffs. Uh, we're hoping for some relief from that uh, uh, this year. Uh, the NAF, the the new U.S. Canada. Um, uh, Mexico trade agreement, sort of the revived uh, revised NAFTA agreement, 
should be, hopefully will be passed this year, but that will not uh, in itself take care of the retaliatory tariffs that Mexico put on cheese. Uh, that's going to have to be negotiated separately. Um, it's hard to crystal ball the, uh, the status of the negotiations with China, um, but we're hopeful that those will be resolved this year. And that will be helpful, but there's a lot of other things the U.S. dairy industry needs to do to really get those exports boosted. And I can uh, drill down a little bit more to the specific problems uh, if, you're, if you're interested in terms of uh, what, what's really affecting the prices. Yeah, let's get into that because there are a lot of issues, a lot of layers to this. So let's kind of dig a little deeper on this. Yeah, just one level down because we don't, don't want to go too far. But dairy farmers are paid separately for their components in most cases. In fact, in all throughout the country, dairy farmers are paid uh, separately on their milk fat and then on the skin portion of their milk. You know, some some producers in certain areas, particularly where there's more manufactured products, are paid on even more specific components, protein and, and the likewise. Others are just paid on the skin. But the, the broad brush situation is milk fat prices are at a, pretty much at an all-time high. That is not where the pricing problem is coming from. It is the producers' uh, prices for skim milk, um, regardless of how they're paid for it, that is that is uh, the particular problem, and the, the the good news on milk fat is, as you well know, there's been a substantial rethinking of um, uh, basically the you know the nutritional implications on human health of consuming fats, including animal fats uh, such as butter and 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 milk fat in general. And in the light of that rethinking, there's been a huge resurgence of consumption of milk fat in all dairy products. It's not just a butter story, Mike. It's um, uh, you know, whole milk is actually growing year over year. It had been leading the decline in the fluid sector, uh, but other you know other the the lower fat versions are still dropping. Uh, whole whole fat yogurt is coming back. The uh, uh, the average fat uh, content of cheeses is going up. And um, as well as butter consumption itself, and that has driven butter prices to uh, pretty much to a very high and sustainable level historically, and uh, that that directly drives the price that producers are paid for their for their fat. So that uh, basically, fat payments to dairy farmers have gone from generally under 40 percent of their total milk check to around 60 percent. Um, as a result of that increase in the fat uh, part of, of the payment structure, and uh, uh, but also a drop in, in the skim portion. So the problems are really coming from skim milk pricing. But interesting that there are some bright spots there. And fluid milk, as you mentioned, that's been a real challenge for a number of years now, but we are seeing uh, some improvement there. Some improvement, but it's still uh, – We've one of the problems is we've been um, – We've been adding cows for the last several years uh, at a time when consumption in the domestic and export market, that growth, has not been been able to justify that increase. And that is that has created surplus stocks that have weighed over prices, particularly with cheese. Um, you know, a lot of that extra uh, ex- excess milk production went into cheese. Uh, and... Uh, Additional milk from the continued decline in the fluids of milk going to fluid has often added more into cheese. On top of that, producers have been actually increasing their uh, 
their component content of their milk through, you know, on an average throughout the entire, um, uh, basically the entire dairy industry, and that's added actually more milk solids uh, uh, compared to the, just the growth of liquid milk production, and that's brought more and more products onto the market. So it's generally been a, a tough supply and demand situation that we really need to get some relief, particularly when it comes to cheese. When it comes to things like nonfat dry milk and dry whey, those we pretty much can export all of all of the product that we have available there. But because we're so entwined with the world market, uh, the price that we get for those components, which affects skim milk prices, is driven by world market conditions. And for example, for skim milk powder, nonfat dry milk, uh, the last several years has been a glut and oversupply in the world market, and so that price. Uh, feeds directly into the domestic market. There's not much we can do about it. The good news is that we've expanded our exports of that last year, and the prices of nonfat dry milk are going up. But uh, cheese prices have been relatively low, and kind of a quirk of, of the technical federal order pricing, the price of butter actually works into the price of skim milk going to produce cheese and whey, the Class three price. Um, and uh, the higher the price of butter, the lower the price of uh, class three skim milk. And so that record high price of butter that's given us uh, high milk fat prices on all milk fat has actually taken away payments from uh, from the uh, uh, on skim for class three, and that also feeds into the class one formula. I know we're getting a little technical here, but yeah. but basically, if you had to point to one thing. Uh, the price, you know, basically the price of cheese is probably one of the the biggest weaknesses that, that's affecting uh, producers' right, payments right now. We're talking with Peter Vitaliano, economist for the National Milk Producers Federation. Real quick, Peter. Um, so hopefully there's going to be some improvement this year, but for some it will not come uh, soon enough. And we've lost uh, several dairy farms, haven't we? A lot of uh, several dairy operations that have had to cease. Yeah. The, the one recommendation I could make uh, in, the, in the short run is to make sure that you sign up for the new dairy margin coverage program at the uh, at the full uh, newer higher level of nine dollars and ninety cents a hundredweight. Uh, you can get that coverage for only fifteen cents a hundredweight for the entire year. And uh, already we've gotten we're going to have one very substantial payment for January, and uh, all the forecasts indicate that uh, there's going to be a significant return, depending on the forecast, somewhere between thirty to forty some cents a hundred weight for signing up to that uh, for that high, highest level of coverage for your first uh, five million pounds of your production history. That's definitely going to pay off and uh, and give you pretty much about the same rate that uh, that the older program last year paid off. So definitely, definitely, Peter, take a, producers need to take a serious look at that. Peter, how many dairy operations did we lose last year? Do you have that number? It's hard to say because um, uh, the, the, we only get the national statistics, and when you parse them out, there doesn't seem to be a very close correlation between. Uh, total numbers that have gone out of business, um, you know, during the good years and the bad years. And I think what that what that means is that during the bad years, you've got um, some producers that are forced out of business, but you have others that hang on. And when the good years come, you don't have as many forced exits, but you have you have farmers that are actually choosing to sell out when their cows are worth more. So. The national statistics don't really let us parse that out very well, okay. unfortunately. Okay. 
Well, hopefully better times ahead for dairy producers. Peter, thank you very much. Good talk with you, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peter Vitaliano, economist for the National Milk Producers Federation. Stay with us on AOA. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, thanks for joining us. I realize it is mid-March. It's not mid-April. It's not, it's not May. But when you look at a lot of the country, a lot of the growing area of the country, it's hard to imagine uh, that the planting is going to be uh, on time and it's hard to imagine it won't be late. It's hard to imagine there won't be some acres maybe not get planted. Uh, uh, do we do the markets start looking at that anytime soon, or is it still way too early? Oh, I, I don't think they do. And our thoughts and prayers go out to the thousands of farmers out there who are struggling, trying to save their livestock, trying to uh, save their farms from the flooding um, and dealing with the elements and. And, of course, for those who are on high land, just trying to deliver grain is nearly impossible. We know there are some farmers still trying to deliver on their January contracts. Roads impassable for snow. Some of them still snow, uh, but others mud and floodwaters. Uh, it, it is a mess in, in northern and western parts of the Midwest, as you know. And uh, it's, it's a big hardship for the industry, not only for the farmers, but also for the industry that uh, consumes and processes those agricultural products. Yeah, beef producers really struggling with this weather. Uh, just people just trying to get around. As you said, it's impacting movement of grain. Um, this, it, not only impacting now, but this will take a while to, to get out of. It really will, and it's a long time before we're going to be in the fields in north, in northern and western parts of the Midwest, really in the northwestern half of the Midwest. It's going to take a lot of time. Now, the, the, you asked about the market factoring it in, and the market's become very skeptical of us talking about planning mm-hmm. delays in past years because they've seen so many years when they rallied the market on fears of planning delays. And then in May, we got a 10-day window, and the farmers planted the crop. Uh, that's kind of their impression of it. So even though we may understand that it's going to take a long time for these fields to dry out and warm up and all the field work that did not get done last fall that still needs to be done this spring before they can plant as well, it's hard for these traders to really grasp that and understand that. They're not agronomically based or farm-based. And it's hard for them to understand that. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if they really did not uh, factor much of this in for a while. Now, having said that, they hold 
speculative hedge funds hold massive short positions in this corn market, and the soybeans as well is pretty significant, and in wheat, but particularly in corn, and it's very unusual for this time of year. So it wouldn't take too much of a headline at some point or a tweet to kind of scare them and start the momentum going, and we could have a sharp rally uh, in the market like what we've had in wheat uh, covering shorts as the computers take over. So that is still a very distinct possibility at any time if something would happen to spur that. Yeah, the markets kind of assume that it's all going to get planted right, and so they've seen this before. It seems late, but then all of a sudden there's a window and things get done. This year seems a little different. I mean, we got a long way. Uh, we got further to go because of the way the winter's been, how and what did not get done last fall. So it's a little bit different. But we'll, we we will wait and see how it how it plays out. But are we creating though a potential friendly scenario for corn if more acres have to wind up going to beans? I would agree with that, and as you know, I've been friendly long-term corn now for quite some time, but meanwhile, the corn market just keeps trending lower and trending lower. It's trying once again to try to put a bottom in. Uh, when you take China out of the equation and look at the rest of the world's corn balance sheet, it keeps getting tighter and tighter each year. Production is behind um, demand, and if you add China in there, yeah, China has big supplies, but the demand is growing faster than production at an even faster pace. Uh, and so uh, we need to produce more corn in the world. The market doesn't seem to recognize or acknowledge that. We do have enough to get to this next year's harvest, and if we have good yields around the world, we'll have enough for the next year as well. But there's very little margin for error, and particularly beyond that, it becomes a problem. And now with the potential for planting delays, we see the, the, that we may get more acres going into soybeans, not get the corn acres that we really need for this coming year, and it makes it even tighter, definitely so. And if China would come in as tried of, kind of a good-faith effort trying to influence the trade talks and buy a significant quantity of corn, ethanol, DDGs, or any combination, I think it would immediately spur that much more concern about then planning delays, uh, any potential weather risks, etc. So as we talk about acres, how many to corn, how many beans, before long, if this weather keeps up the way it is, we'll be talking about how many might be uh, prevented planted acres, right? Yeah, exactly right, and and especially once again in the northern and western parts of the Midwest, and I'm not just talking about fringe areas, I'm talking about a significant portion of the Midwest that's of concern right now. Yeah, I think that's the story we're going to be watching here uh, in the next few weeks. We're talking with uh, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. All right, so on the China situation, which we keep talking about, talking about, uh, we get these mixed uh, signals that one day it looks like they're going to get something done. The next day now it's getting pushed off. Then you hear stories about, well, you know, the president could just walk away. And, you know, there's, so there's a lot of negotiating still going on. But do we feel, do the markets feel more optimistic, less optimistic about a deal now than they did, say, a week or so ago? I think the uh, ag commodity markets are more pessimistic. They're not seeing the visible signs of movement. Uh, it goes all the way back to December 1st when we were promised substantial quantities of commodities. We have seen some soybeans per- 
purchase since then, but even now the latest purchases, we're looking at delivery into the fall time period, which pushes in in the next marketing year. So some discouragement there about it not happening. But yet the, the trade is also trying to balance possibility of a lack of a trade deal, but what's happening with African swine fever and the big surge in pork imports that we saw this last week in the data um, and the need for more meat going into China. And then with the news report early today that China acknowledging their pig herd is down 16.6% year on year, we've been saying 20%. Um, if they're going that far, how much worse might it be? Maybe our numbers are too too conservative on how bad it is. Um, to see China make that kind of acknowledgement, and that means a lot more meat needing to be imported, and it takes a lot more uh, grain to produce that meat. Yeah, that's a story to watch, and obviously it's far from over, and it, uh, you're right. Uh, it seems like the numbers are getting bigger on that, so we'll continue to watch that. You know, I keep saying this. Uh, I'm concerned about over-optimism that a deal with China is going to fix everything and cautioning people that it won't. I'm also concerned now, longer term, whatever deal we get, and hopefully we'll get one, and hopefully it'll be a good one. But when you have numbers coming out, like we saw the the uh, research done by American Farm Bureau Federation, and we talked about this earlier in the week, showing the the negative impact on ag exports and breaking it down state by state that we've already seen from this trade war with China, have to wonder uh, if that'll ever be recovered, even with a good deal, aren't we? Haven't isn't this going to be potentially a, a big net loss for agriculture? However, the deal turns out. Well, it depends on whether you see it as a glass half full or half empty. And, and what I mean by that is, as I look at the data, we were trending lower and lower and lower in what we were exporting to China. So what we've done is gone into a battle to try to change that. Uh, we'd already shut off both, basically most of the corn, the ethanol, DDG, grain sorghum. Uh, much of the cotton had been restricted. Wheat had been restricted. Uh, and, uh, so, and then soybeans were starting to go down as well as China was shifting its demand there. So by taking on this battle, if we get a good trade deal, can it, take things back to where they were, so to speak, or maybe better than what they were, or does do we not get anything that can do that, and did we just accelerate the downfall? And that's a question we're not going to have an answer to uh, until we actually see a conclusion of these talks and what comes out of it. And frankly, long term, I have a, a healthy dose of skepticism anyway. When I look at China's objectives, when I look at their objectives in developing a superior economy and military and expansion and wanting to diversify where they get their goods and services, they see us as the enemy to reaching that. They do not want to be dependent upon us. They want to diversify buying from elsewhere from the United States. Uh, and so I, even though they want a deal to take the attention off of what they're doing and are willing to buy commodities to try to get that deal, longer term, I think that they're an unreliable customer. And I, I think we need to be looking at diversifying and going elsewhere to try to uh, sell what we produce. Yeah, whatever deal comes out, and hopefully one will, that's going to be sold to us as a great thing. But it would have to be better long-term, for a long time, just to, to make up for what we've lost, right? I would agree with that. Now, certainly that is def it's easy to answer that question with soybeans. 
we haven't seen any corn or ethanol or DDGs go there for quite some time of any significance. And so short term, we could see if with a deal, a surge in that going there. And I do think there's probably the best opportunities for it to be positive would be in corn because, yes, African swine fever is eroding demand, um, but also we've got a lot of shifting to production of poultry, which will consume corn. Ethanol production is really ramping up uh, in China, utilizing corn. There's a lot of other opportunities for corn that's not necessarily going to save the day, but be a positive for the Midwest farmer. Um, But long term, I, I just think it's a real problem. Arlen, as always, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, genetically engineered animals, cell-based meat products, uh, all this uh, perhaps coming to the market very soon. What about oversight between USDA and FDA? We talk about that now with Dan Kovich. He is the National Pork Producers Council Director for Science and Technology. Dan, thanks for joining us. Uh, What concerns do you have about uh, the oversight of the two agencies on this new technology? Thanks. Happy to be uh, talking with you about this. First of all, on the cell-based meats or fake meat or whatever you want to call it, I think that we, we have gotten a, a good regulatory victory here in D.C. Um, initially, the FDA was going to try and claim jurisdiction, complete jurisdiction over these products, which really concerned us because we felt it was really important to create a level playing field with traditional products, the the pork, the beef, the chicken that America's farmers are producing every day, that we had to have the same labeling requirements, the same food safety requirements, that processing and so forth. So we fought really hard to to get a role for the USDA in regulating those products. I'm really happy to say that... uh, they just came out with a, a formal memorandum of understanding or actually a signed agreement between the two agencies that, that does say that the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service will have oversight over processing of products uh, that are made in that way. And, and crucially, I think, the labeling. You know, consumers need to know what they're getting. And if something's labeled pork, that means it came from a pig. When it comes to gene editing, um, I think yeah. we're kind of we're facing a similar situation. There's there's a really old regulatory uh, paradigm here in D.C. that dates all the way back to the Reagan years that said that the FDA would take responsibility for biotechnology involving animals, and the USDA would take responsibility for biotechnology involving plants. And and way back then, it may have made sense because. Really, the only applications in animals were for biomedical purposes, not for commercial agriculture. Obviously, over the years, we've seen the plants surge ahead under the USDA. We really haven't had anything on the animal side. Well, 
Now with gene editing, we're in a position where we can make small, precise changes within an animal's own genome. So we're not talking transgenics here or the quote-unquote frankenfood that people like to to bring up, but but things within the pig's or any other animal's own genome that, for example, could make them resistant to diseases like PERS. I mean, the PERS virus is the major economic uh, cost to pork producers in the animal health space, and, and that's why we're really excited about this. But... You know, I think to get this moving forward in a place where farmers can use it, we're going to have to get it out from under that animal drug paradigm at the FDA and find a better regulatory path forward. So we have technology getting ahead of uh, regulatory oversight, you think, and adjustments need to be made to catch up? I, I think that's exactly what it is. You know, the again, the USDA has done a great job with the plants over the years under the Plant Protection Act. Um, there's also the Animal Health Protection Act, which I think which I think gives the USDA the authority uh, to take over responsibility for regulating, at the very least, the descendants of gene edited animals. Because it's not we're not going to actually be gene editing animals on farms. You know, it's going to be descendants of animals that have had these precise, safe edits that are going to be producing food on America's farms. So you got two different issues in here. you got the, the cell-based products. Now we're talking about gene editing in animals. Uh, at some point, it, and maybe this gets back to what you started, your co- comments about in, in getting this information as far as oversight and, and clear. I mean, consumer confusion and consumer reaction are going to be a big part to all of this, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think some of it's fair. You know, consumers deserve to know uh, what they're eating and, and how it's produced. You know, on the one hand, uh, we've got the laboratory-produced protein products, which um, I think people are going to want to try and claim are exactly the same as the products that that we as pork producers or ranchers uh, produce. And that's just that's simply not the case. We need to have transparency there. You know, when it comes to gene editing, I think that there is a lot of mistrust on the part of the public, um, lack of understanding perhaps of what's been done in the past and what we're trying to do here. And I think, again, the, the key message that we need to communicate is, is that these are small, precise changes within the animal's own genome. A pig is still a pig. A cow is still a cow. Um, these are things that could be done. Um, through conventional breeding, through selection, and, you know, I think any farmer understands that, you know, that takes a lot of time and can come with a lot of genetic baggage if you're crossbreeding mm-hmm. two different breeds or types. This is a way to get there faster, more economically, um, you know, and produce pigs that are healthier, have better welfare, and potentially food that's safer. So, you know, that's why we need to get this right and, and for the public to really understand that, again, a pig is still a pig, a cow is still a cow, a chicken is still a chicken. All right. So you like the way the oversight's going with the uh, the cell-based products, but specifically what would you like to see when it comes to oversight on the gene editing on animals? You want more to USDA rather than FDA? Exactly. What we really want to see is a similar process happen, where both agencies sit down and figure out where they have expertise, where it makes most sense for them to be involved. Um, You know, and and we need another formal agreement between the two saying, this is strictly what the FDA is going to have responsibility for, and this is strictly what the USDA is going to have responsibility for, and particularly that the USDA needs to have responsibility 
for the descendants of gene-edited animals that are actually on America's farms, on America's ranches, that that needs to be under the regulatory oversight of the Secretary of Agriculture and not the Commissioner of the FDA. Wow. It is a changing world, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. But, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. I think, you know, gene editing offers us incredible opportunity to address a lot of viral diseases of livestock and poultry that we've, you know, really desperately needed new tools to, to get at for quite right. some time. Yeah, a lot of potential there that could be very, very helpful indeed. Dan, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Dan Kovich, National Pork Producers Council, Director of Science and Technologies. You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacorzemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications. And you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected weed acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio. You're, You're covered, covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions.